you get a homer, you get a homer, you get a homer. It was certainly a happy Harvey day for the Mets bats in Baltimore. We'll dive into the six homer, 14 run barrage, Pete Alonzo's ball comments, the upcoming seven-game homestand, and where the Mets stand a third of the way through the season. Our special guest this week is timely after celebrating the 22-year mustache disguise anniversary on Wednesday. It's former Mets manager and Stanford mayoral candidate Bobby V. Bobby Valentine joins us. Plus, we play your voicemails in You Got Mail. It's all next on Amazing But True from the New York Post. Queens, New York. Mets take the field. So amazing. Amazing but true. Orange and blue. So amazing. Here's the pitch. New York, folks. It's out of here. We got you. Ooh. Welcome to Amazing but True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. We are one third of the way through our 162 game season. I am. Jake Brown alongside Nelson Figueroa, former Mets pitcher. You can follow us both on Twitter at Jake Brown Radio and at Figgy, F I double G I E N Y. Joining us later in the show, Figgy is former Mets manager and mayoral candidate Bobby Valentine. We had a fun interview ahead with Bobby V. If you're not subscribed, do it. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. Give us a five-star rating. Write in a nice review. Also, later in the show, Figgy, we debut You Got Mail. The Amazing But True voicemail box is open, and we play a couple of voicemails. We got an email, amazingbuttruepod at gmail.com if you want to email us, so stay tuned for that. But we are one-third of the way through. It feels like longer. I don't know. I mean, baseball's a long season, but we are 54 games in, and the Mets are 30-24, and 24, Figgy. They've been in first place for over a month, and to head into the third way point of the season, they decide to score the most amount of runs, not only against Matt Harvey, but on 6-9, the nicest day of the year, June 9th. The Mets have their nicest offensive performance of the season. You love to see it. Yeah, happy Harvey Day to everybody because we knew on the calendar after taking a shellacking the day before, the Mets were going to come out swinging uh, very early. Pete Alonzo makes their presence felt on a hanging slider, 88 miles an hour, and it leaves the ballpark a lot faster than that. And Taiwan Walker, who's been just fantastic all year long, little IL stint, but man, he is fun to watch. He just goes out there and continues to compete and impress. Seven strong innings, only one run. That's what he's capable of, man. And he's just been very, very steady. He's as consistent as is the performance as you've gotten out of any other starter not named Jacob deGrom. He's been just a breath of fresh air. To believe that he was not signed until, you know, spring training almost started is incredible. It was an injury thing that they were always worried about. They were always worried about, you know, could he repeat what he had, new gear he had taken in Toronto. Toronto, they weren't sure about that. I mean, a lot of teams passed on him. So the Mets found a good one in Taiwan Walker. He fits in with this team. He, he really does a fantastic job of pounding the strike zone, moving the pitches around and being unpredictable. And uh, he's been fantastic. He's been incredible. But the guy who has been the heart and soul of the New York Mets has got to be Kevin Pillar. I mean, just coming back from the injury, obviously, he became a king the way he said you know, that night he was like, I want to play tomorrow, basically. The next day he said, I want to play. Meanwhile, the guy, like, needed oxygen. Like, he he couldn't breathe. His face looked like he just got in a, in a big alleyway fight with a sumo wrestler. 
and he looked beaten down and bruised, comes back two weeks later. And what does he do Wednesday night? He hits two homers. I mean, can the Mets face Matt Harvey every day? I mean, the Mets would be the best offense in baseball. I mean, Hugh Quattlebaum, Chili Davis, no matter who the hitting coach is, the Mets are going to hit Matt Harvey. And, you know, he even said after the game, he's like, for the last few years, I have been horse SH, you know what? He said, if I knew how to fix it, I would. Well, he hasn't been able to fix it. And Kevin Pillar hasn't been able to fix how great he's been. And we love it. We love it as Mets fans. We love to see his leadership. You know, the guy who wants to be out there every day. He's not just there for Hardy. He's actually hitting the ball and he's playing defense and he's doing it all. He could play all three outfield positions. They got two from him. They also get two from President McKinley. Billy McKinney hits two. Pilar hits two. Pete hits his third in two games. Mason Williams said, hey, why don't I join the party? He hits his first homer of the year. The top three have been amazing, amazing, but true for the Mets. And, you know, it's made up for David Peterson, who we'll get into in a second, got shelled on Tuesday. But Kevin Pillar has been the, you know, the unheralded leader here for this team. And I think the guys rally around him. You saw the Mets all rally around Jacob deGrom when there was that video and people saying that he cheats or whatever. And, you know, he put his hand under his belt and maybe he was using a foreign substance. And they all said, we've never seen that. And you just saw the whole team back him. Of course, the teammates are going to back him, even if he did do something, but he is DeGoat, so you're going to go on DeGoat's side. But to see them, you know, back their teammates, to see what Pilar has done, you're seeing great camaraderie here a third of the way this, through the season. We got two-thirds left, but through the first third, Figgy, you got to be so satisfied with everything from A to Z in this team. And these kind of, you take every win you get with all these guys out at this point because you're like, you know, these are kind of wins you just you take in the bag and go on to the next day with all these injuries. Yeah, you're looking at the best case scenario for everything that has happened. You're talking 18 guys on the IL at one time. You're talking not having seven of your guys in your opening day lineup. And to see them compete on a night in and night out basis, Kevin Pillar is definitely set the tone for what it means to be a professional ball player, to go out there and, and be available. And he's come a right? long way, Figgy, from opening day when we got mad that he was leading off on opening day. Now we, he could put him any spot in the lineup. If he's in the lineup, we're happy. Yeah, no, and, and that's one of the things we were worried about, right? We said about this team and the personality. What, who is going to be the face of this team? And you want it to be a superstar. You want it to be Lindor. You want it to be Pete Alonso. But this is what happens when uh, a guy does something out of the ordinary and makes you believe. Kevin Pillar makes you believe that this team has a toughness like no other. Kevin Pillar makes you believe that when he's in the clubhouse, everybody takes notice of how he handles himself. And I hope that kind of um, washes off on the other players. I hope that, you know, it resonates with them in such a way that they say, hey, you know what? I took this as, you know, great, I'm in the big leagues. This is a great thing. It's not a right, it's a privilege. And he knows that. And his opportunity to play, he knew what he was coming into. He was going to be a fourth outfielder, maybe fifth outfielder, because you had Almora, who, you know, a similar style player who is younger, faster kind of thing. But man, that this guy has reckless abandon for his own health and welfare, still going after balls against the wall, still trying to make diving plays with his nose barely attached to his face. And that's what this team desperately needed was an identity. And that identity happens to be a guy whose nickname is Superman. It isn't Chris Reeves. It isn't Clark Kent. It's Kevin Pillar, man. And, and that's been really what it's come down to is, is the toughness 
that this team has showed the grit and, and it's an attitude it's really an attitude like we come to the ballpark we don't know who's going to be in the lineup it's not just the fans they don't know who's going to be in the lineup they don't know where they're batting in the lineup they don't know where they're playing doesn't matter they just want an opportunity to be out there be available for the team and for each other and to find a way to win a ball game and they've been doing just that give me the dh all the damn time i mean it was, <laughs> it's so their lineup looks so good i'm like wow this is the best lineup they've had since everyone's in her and then i'm like oh because of course we have the dh even Mason Williams, you know, his homer, he's batting respectively. But Billy McKinney has kind of been a godsend since he got here. I mean, he's he's hitting homers left and right. I know he dropped that ball in the diving attempt. He's played pretty solid defense. Another guy that could play all the outfield positions and giving you versatility that you so badly needed because, listen, they were throwing Cameron Maben out there. Cameron Maben can't even get a hit in AAA right now. He's hitting nothing. The poor guy cannot hit a damn thing. So to upgrade from Maben to McKinney looked so small when it happened. But it's really been a monster upgrade that we really did not see coming when the Mets acquired him and batted him cleanup within oh. 16 hours of acquiring him. Yeah, a guy like McKinney is clamoring for an opportunity. And there is almost a comfort level of probably when he got here, they said, hey, you're in the lineup for the foreseeable future. It wasn't like if you had a bad game or a bad week, you're getting sent down. There were no bodies behind him. That's why they went out and got him. His uh, availability, you know, it's alarming when you're a player and all of a sudden you're on waivers and, you know, you're not sure where you're going to be. Give me an opportunity to play. Show what I can do. McKinney's bat speed has been impressive, man. He gets to a fastball on the inside part of the plate really, really well. And so you're starting to see him get a little bit more comfortable out there. You're starting to see him be less tentative, especially defensively. You know, he lay out for a ball, you know, take a chance. And, and go over aggressively after a ball down the line and make a strong throw to second. So he has all the tools. He was a high draft pick, so he has all the tools. So it's good to see him get that opportunity. You're going to almost miss these guys when the starters come back. You're talking about Brandon Nimmo, Michael Conforto, McNeil. Those guys are coming back, and those other guys are going to go away. Thank you for the job that you've done, but when those regulars come back, they're going to be back in it. But they have been fun to watch, and, and you root for these guys. You really, really do because they seem to find a way to be in every single ball game. They had that bad game against Baltimore. And when you look at the numbers for the road trip, they went on this road trip, and it was kind of a make-or-break kind of thing. You're like, okay, they're, they're afloat. They're staying on top in the East. The East has got to get better. They took care of business in a major way. Their hitting was uh, fifth in all of baseball for the first time that I can remember. Batting 274 as a team throughout this road trip. The pitching was sixth, actually, in all of baseball. So right there on top of baseball, they're driving in runs, runners in scoring position. You're not hearing that anymore about, oh, my God, they left a ton of guys on base. They're making it exciting each and every night. The bullpen has been just lights out. You know, you had the bad game. Even with that, even with that bad game against Baltimore in 10 runs, you see what this pitching staff is capable of doing on a night-in and night-out basis. All things are gravy in Mets land. If you change your mind, I'm the first in line. Honey, I'm still free. Take a chance on McKinney. Oh, it was too easy. I love oh, when I could boy. quote Mama Mia on Amazing But True. Thanks to Figgy setting me up. He threw the lob to Blake Griffin, who threw it down and said, take a chance. Take a chance on me. Honey, I'm still free. What a what a classic <laughs> song. Um, Billy McKinney was basically free. He was as free as uh, Cameron Mabin's $1. We can go dancing. We can go walking <laughs> as long as we're together. Uh, here on Amazing But True, Jake Brown, Nelson Figueroa, a third of the way through the season. Mets at 30-24, three and a half games up on the Braves, four on the Phillies, seven on the Nats, seven and a half on the Marlins, and they come home. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. 
33,000 fans are coming home. See there, seven games, three against the Padres, four against the Cubs. It's not only exciting that they're coming home, Figgy, where they are the best team in baseball, 15-5. and five. Notice because of all these rainouts, they have played so many less, one games, but less home games. Most teams in the league have played at the minimum like 30 home games. The Mets are 20, 54 games. They have 61 home games left. And they have 108 games to go. So more than half of their games are at home, and they've been the best team at home. That's a good sign, especially when you're going to get Conforto back. McNeil starts rehabbing uh, within the next week. Luis Guillorme should be back this weekend for the homestand, if not Friday. Then Saturday, unfortunately, J.D. Davis, no timetable, man. I don't know when they're getting him back. Carrasco, they're a little worried about that timeline. We might not see him until late July. Syndergaard, we're probably not seeing until September at this point. So the Mets might have to go get a pitcher because the other aspect of this, we're talking about the good and the gravy, is David Peterson, which we'll talk about for a second here, Figgy. He's thrown three innings the last two starts. He's getting shelled. Is this a two-start thing? Do you got to send him to the minors? They don't have a lot of options unless they want to throw, you know, an opener out there like a Castro or something or try and get someone up from the minors. But if Peterson gets rocked one more time, I would say it's time to send him down. But it does seem Figgy, Luis Rojas has said, that he's going to get at least one more chance. Maybe this is just a tough little stretch that he's in right now. Yeah, it's more than a tough little stretch. It's, it's To me, it's blatantly obvious that they know what's coming. The way he's getting hit, uh, the way they're taking pitches and then on every single pitch, it's not that he's missing so terribly. I mean, there's pitches that are outside the strike zone, but when you can almost guess as he's about to throw the ball that, okay, this one's going to be a changeup, you know where to look for the pitch, you know which direction it's going to move in, and you're able to meet it there. So it started with that changeup double, you know, to right center field. The changeup was about a foot and a half off the plate. So it wasn't like he threw a pitch right down the middle, but they were ready for it. He was throwing a breaking ball down and in. They were ready for it. It's obvious to me that that's what's happening. And nobody wants to say it because if you're admitting that, then everybody really starts to take notice. You know what I take notice at? Every time he plays pitches against a team that he's faced more than once, they hit him hard. And why do they hit him hard? Is because they have learned what it is that he is tipping and how he's tipping it. I have not been able to take the video and chop it up the way I used to do at my previous job. I would be able to kind of figure out that and I could see some other angles. But it's definite to me that he's tipping pitches because there's no way with his kind of stuff and the way that he was able to pitch last year. It's not that his stuff has regressed. In fact, his velocity has increased. His movement is there. It's just been literally every time it seems like he goes back to back with certain pitches, they're on that second pitch and they're they're hitting it hard. So for me, I think he needs to really analyze what's he, what's he doing that they're picking up on. You got to have some veteran guys stand in on your bullpens and, and watch you. I remember when I first got up, I was in AAA and there was a guy who had been in you know AAA for a long time, played in the big leagues. And as I'm getting ready to throw my pitch, he would yell out what I was going to throw right before I even started, you know, moving my my hands or or starting my windup. And I was like, "What are you talking about?" I was like, "How do you know?" And he's like. I can see either your glove the way it opens. I could see whether you squeeze your glove closed before you throw the pitch. He goes, and that lets me know right away. He goes, all it takes is a few batters of me watching, and I can pick out probably two to three things that you do that tip off what kind of pitch you're going to throw. These guys you know, normally don't have a lot of innings in the minor leagues, and they rock it through the minor leagues, and they get to the big leagues, 
and the first time through the league is great. You're having a great time. You know, they're trying to figure you out still. But once they get some video on you, and now we know how much teams sit there and analyze, they pay people to sit there and analyze and to watch and to draw lines on the screen and figure out what's he doing with his hands when he throws a fastball, what's he doing with his hands when he throws a changeup. They break that thing down so quickly, and then they're on you, and it's tough to shake. But you've got to try and do something. Some things a little different. Hold your hands a little different. Maybe add a glove twitch or something like that. Ryan Dempster was very famous with that. He went to that and never looked back because he made it a little bit more unpredictable what he was doing. Well, David Peterson has been bad. We'll see what he has next time before they potentially send him down if he gets rocked again. Jacob DeGrom has been great. I mentioned earlier the, the players defending him over the uh, foreign substances that some clown thought he used. But Pete Alonzo's also been great, Figgy. And Pete Alonzo, since he's come off the IL, he's hitting the ball great. We're hopefully going to have him back on Amazing But True at some point this season. He was on in the offseason. He made some comments that uh, that took the news waves by storm after Garrett Cole did, where Garrett Cole, our own Ken David off of the New York Post, basically said to use spider tack. And he'd say yes, and he didn't say no. He went in the between, and it was not the uh, – he might need a new publicist after uh, his answer on that one. But Pete Alonzo basically said that MLB has been changing their baseballs based on the free agent class. He said that's a fact. Players talk about it with each other. He said in 2019 there was a huge class of free agent pitchers. It's not a coincidence. Do you put any stock into this? Is this a conspiracy theory? Is the league changing its balls every year? Do you notice what he's talking about? I mean, you're not out there pitching and, and playing, but – is Pete Alonzo telling the truth? Is he right here? That, that's more of a feeling. That's more of a, something that he feels or or there's nothing that you can specifically pinpoint. You know, I, I think they're thinking offense is down this year, that, you know, the pitchers are throwing more no hitters, that the balls may be changed. They don't change the ball every year. That's just absurd to think about. You know, it, it's usually like a three, four, five-year period where you kind of see – you know, who's making the ball, how they're making the ball, what kind of materials they're using, if there's any advancements. They try a lot of different things. I can't see them regulating the shortstop class that's coming out where it's one of the biggest ever and saying, you know, we're going to give them mush balls to hit so they don't hit that many home runs so we can keep their prices down. They're going to get paid regardless, okay? If we learned anything, those guys that are generational-type players, they're going to get their number, whatever it may be. We say like with Machado, with Harper, it took longer and they had to sit around and wait and maybe they went to teams that you wouldn't suppose they were going to go to. Nobody, you know, predicted San Diego for Machado. You thought it was a, a done deal that he was going to be either a Yankee or, you know, a Dodger. He was already with the Dodgers. So that's where I'm looking at the comments. And I don't think they're frustrated comments, but I think when you've seen the juice ball and the way the balls were jumping out just a few years ago, and now you're hitting the same ball the same way and you don't see it traveling nearly as much. But if you watch the highlights each and every night, when those guys hit them, they're still going a long, long way. So I can't say that all of a sudden, oh, you know, look who's playing. Uh, Carlos Correa is playing. Oh, let's use these mush balls so he doesn't hit any home runs. That's not happening. So I don't think – I think it's just a, a feeling that he's having that the balls may – maybe to regulate the playing field of the juice ball era, maybe that there's a little more – given the ball that could be from a number of things we saw with the Colorado Rockies they used the humidifier for years and years and years to try and take away some of that jumping element and giving up all those home runs because their pitching staff was getting decimated because of the long ball so I think every team does a little something whether they keep it in a in a sauna whether they keep it in the cooler once you hand those balls over to the umpires the umpires then rub them up to take the shine off the ball and they use like it's called Mississippi mud so that the balls 
have a little bit of tackiness, not spider tackiness, but a little bit of tackiness so that you don't have to use a foreign substance normally. That's what you're looking at. It's just, it's, it's just Pete maybe being a little too vocal about something that he doesn't know uh, 100%, but it's just a hunch that he has. Spider tack, spider tack, does whatever a spider can. Uh, I still, do, did you know what spider tech Cause Jeff Nelson, our pinstripe pot host didn't know what that was. I've never heard of it. Did you know, have you used spider tech? I have, I have really? and I've, I, yeah. insider well, information for spider tech friggy cheating on the mound. Now, now I have seen it and I've used it. I've watched guys throw bullpens all over the years of training kids and stuff like that. And it's just a, literally makes you feel like Spider-Man because you put it on your fingertips and you can hold the baseball without even using your thumb. Figgy there. trains his kids to cheat. No, that's not what I'm saying. So anywho, yes, spider tack is a substance that um, Cheater. Trevor Bauer famously went and as much as he likes to put all his stuff online, um, you can see it. You can still look it up. He was trying to get Bauer units as a measurement of spin rate. And so Trevor Bauer would literally put a excel spreadsheet together throw a fastball with nothing on it throw a, a fastball after using rosin throw a fastball after using unknown substance spider tech uh he would throw a fastball with saliva used he'd throw a fastball with pine tar used and check the spin rates on every single one of those this is where the nerd part of him got him going and figuring out what could he use and what what the difference was in each one of his pitches he literally said if i wanted to up my spin rates by 400 rpms I could do it very easily. And then he did it last year in the 11 game season or 11 game starts that he had and wins a Cy Young. And no one thought it was curious that after he had said it, he actually did it. And no one's able to check for it. No one's able to find it or they don't want to be the team that does it and calls them out on it. You're seeing that more and more because they're starting to realize some of these guys, there's there's a big change in the picture that they were to the picture that they are now. Garrett Cole, two years before going to Houston, I believe had a, over a 6 ERA. All of a sudden, he goes to Houston and bam, his curveball is nasty. He's throwing 100 for the first time in his career. He wasn't that hard of a thrower. And then you're starting to see Charlie Morton, Verlander, you know these guys in Houston are always looking for an edge. They're always trying to find an edge. And we've seen that already with them, no matter what, uh, which way they're doing it, whether it's technology or maybe it's spider tech, maybe it's something like that. But I I'm looking at guys that pitch there and seeing how well they pitch there. And then all of a sudden when they go somewhere else, if they continue pitching that well, and actually it was the clubhouse, one of the clubhouse guys from Anaheim that called out Garrett Cole saying that he made the stuff for him and the sticky stuff. So there's a big investigation that's going to be underway and they're going to check on these guys, but it's hard to do it after the fact. What are you going to do? Video doesn't show baseballs, uh, what's been used. I watched you Darvish, no exaggeration. I have the video clip. You Darvish went and found the spot in his glove where he ran his fingers inside the thumb. And the next pitch he threw was a 92 mile an hour split finger that went left to right moved at least three and a half feet that's not normal i don't know how they're going to monitor like yeah they might before the game but between innings guys are just going to go in the clubhouse and put stuff like what are they going to monitor every inning like someone in the dugout before they go out there they're going to like pat them down like they're at LaGuardia pre-covid uh, yeah. like, like all right let's go in between let's check let's check some other balls that you might have and go down there let's check you under your waist let's check here it's gonna i don't know how this is gonna work how they're gonna monitor it effectively figure however this is this is the other side of what Pete Alonso said. Pete Alonso said about the pitchers using foreign substances. He likes it. 
nobody, none of the hitters have ever really complained about it. It's not that it's not fair. Think about the hitters. The hitters are using a sticky substance to hold onto the bat because they don't want the bat to slip out of their hands. They're swinging it over 100 miles an hour. The pitcher's throwing a ball 100 miles an hour in their direction. Of course they want them to be able to have control over it and not slip out of their hands. So I, I think there's a happy medium. As long as you're not, it's almost like, you know, you try to, to be gentlemanly about it, like an unspoken rule in the game where as long as you're not egregious with it and like Pineda having pine tar dripping down the side of his neck then you can get away with it in some aspects but if you're making a mockery of the game by doing something like that or the stickum that some guys had on the side of their arm and they go to it and when you go to it you make it extremely obvious that's where i think the game has a problem with it because then you're you're absolutely saying hey i'll do it right in front of your face and i don't care who knows about it and speaking of pine tar that was pine tar on kevin pilar's bat i know it went it blew up and went viral that Everyone said he used the same bat that he was bleeding on when he got hit in the face, and it was red. He confirmed on Twitter. He tweeted that I appreciate his pine tar, and you know people will run with the lies that go on. Well, Friday, uh, Jacob Degrom will pitch, and the Mets just scored fourteen, which means they will lose one nothing on Friday against the Padres. <laughs> and uh, I will be there. Figgy, you're gonna have to come out to City Field at some point because the amazing but true shirts are running out. If you, and I'll bring a few more this weekend. I know a few listeners wanted one who will, will be there. City Field is gonna be packed, so you better make it out before they're all gone without you even getting one at this point. Because I don't know how long I can reserve these. Uh, on the side. So maybe we'll go against the Cubs next week, four in a row. I know you probably got a bowl this weekend in, in these hot temperatures. Uh, you know, these hot <laughs> hey, not outdoors, right? Bro, do it indoors. These 90 degree temperatures. I had to shave. I hate to get graphic. I had to shave the front, the chest all area. I, I feel like I lost two pounds uh, from the back and front shaving. I, I feel like so much better. I have I've never had to shave my back. Yeah. Well, Holy uh, cow, may not need this fun. information, but I actually paid my roommate to do it. I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. I, I said I will pay the internet bill if you shave for him <laughs> if he does. My, and he was declining it at first, and I'm like, bro, this is a steal for you. Most there would be people who would do this free. So basically, and I got him a coffee today. So a forty dollar value to trim my back, not like Bic with the cream, just the electric. And now it's cleanly shaven. That one pound I shaved the front, one in the back. I'm two pounds lighter on today's recording of Amazing Butch. So am I from all the throw up that just came out of my mouth. Good God. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's hard to do yourself. You really need someone to do it for because trying to reach is really difficult. Um, but now I am. <laughs> Mr. Spock. Yeah, now, now, now you're like a dolphin. Yeah, it's Mo amazing. Mona Lisa in the building. My <laughs> eyebrows are still intact. Um, but yeah, this this show this continues oh, to go man. off the deep end every week, uh, which is a lot for a guy who, who can't really swim in me. So amazing, but true. You can't <laughs> swim. Oh, we'll save that for another episode. Oh man, <laughs> I could doggy paddle. I mean, I could swim a little, but like all out swim, I cannot. I I will drown. I try to avoid being in the water at all costs. I love a pool. These hot days remind me how badly we need a pool. I'm not going to go to the Astoria pool where kids are pissing in it left and right, but I, I need a pool. But an ocean and uh, swimming, yeah, my breath strokes and deep strokes just. Uh, Aren't, aren't effective. Oh, anyway, man. that's enough to hear out of me. But we want to hear from you. And you got mail. Before we get to Bobby Valentine, a lot coming up here. If you haven't got enough already, we've had so much we've discussed on this ridiculous show. We still have to hear from you and Bobby Valentine next on Amazing But True. 
got mail. All right, folks, it's time to debut our You Got Mail segment where we hear from you, the fans, the listeners of Amazing But True. If you want to hear your voice and your voicemail, 845-391-3660. Or you can email us, Figgy, at amazingbuttruepod at gmail.com. And we actually did get an email, so... Someone who didn't want their voice to be heard. So we'll start with an email. Hi, guys. Just wanted to say how much I enjoy the podcast. Listen on my commute. All good. I think we're doing a great job with the lineup being fielded. If we can get through, still in contention, I'm confident we'll do good upon the normal lineup return. All the best, LGM. Mark Crockett. He said, P.S. Met Figgy after the Friday game of the NLCS City 2015. I'm the fellow who flew in that day from England. From England. Uh-huh. Yep. So you remember Mark Crockett, Vicky? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've kept it. I, I've watched him from afar on Twitter. Uh, when you are a passionate fan who travels across the pond uh, just to watch baseball, and he had an incredible time with the World Series and the playoff run. Um, and, and he's a huge fan. He's a huge beer guy, too. He gives you all these kind of reviews on beers, so all kinds of craft beers and everything like that. So he's a guy that I always kind of watch his Twitter. Where is he at in the world and what's he doing? So, yeah, Mark is definitely a good dude. Well, put on your beaver cap and chop some wood. Thanks, Mark <laughs> Davy Crockett, for the uh, for the email. Now we go to the voicemails. We got a couple of voicemails, and here we go. What do we got for us today? You've got mail. Hi. I'm going to stay anonymous for now. I'm from New Jersey, very big Mets fan. I have a lot of memorabilia, signed memorabilia. I just want to say that I love you guys. I laughed my butt off Monday listening to the podcast. You guys are great. Love you. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you. Thank you, Miss, Miss Anonymous, uh, for the call. Uh, we love a good anonymous phone call. You never know who it might be. Hey, normally with anonymous, it's a bad thing, right? Because that's where they start to rip you, and they don't want <laughs> they don't want you to go back at them. But this was a good one. This was a good one, and uh, thank you very much for listening and laughing your butt off is part of it. And hopefully, you learn a little something, you laugh a little bit, and uh, at the end of the show, you realize that if they're not winning at the time, things will get better, and if they are winning at the time, you know that uh, good days are still yet ahead because every fifth day is Jacob DeGrom Day. I don't want to hear about Harvey Day anymore. It's a great combo when you can make you laugh and the Mets are winning, and that's what we're getting right now, first place and laughter. So thank you for the voicemail. Here's uh, number two. You've got mail. Hey, guys. My name is Mitch. Waxman, Siggy knows me from baseball camp. I have a question for Siggy. Does he think that Marcus Stroman would get a brown rope for his throw to first base? Or does he think that Pete Alonso, with his stellar throw, although he didn't do it on purpose, which happens sometimes, get a brown rope for his throw down the first baseline just curious i'll be listening to your webcast hope all is well bye-bye love a good webcast listener figgy is is a brown rope some kind of joke with you guys or something so in fantasy camp the fantasy camper is every morning there's a nominees for the gold rope which looks like a gold rope chain and that's the guy who gets to wear it all day long because he did something great the day before and then for the guy who does something bad 
is the brown rope. So yes, Marcus Stroman definitely would get a brown rope. Pete Alonzo, even though it wasn't on purpose, may have to share the brown rope. That's one of those plays that we went off about that it has to be made, right? And even the pros messed that up. So Waxy, let me tell you something. I've seen more than my share of plays that would get brown ropes throughout fantasy camp. They're usually funny and we could laugh them off because it's not game losing kind of plays or championship losing kind of plays, but even the pros do it. So you got to always kind of take it in stride and be able to laugh it off. And uh, I think it's all in good fun, especially for the fantasy campers, because they do have a lot of fun. I'm glad you guys are enjoying your inside jokes. I feel left out over here. (laughs) 845-391-3660. Amazing but true pod at G email.com what was his name mark we had waxman waxman his name is wax waxman you're jewish waxman mark waxman yes wow that's like my uh attorney uh mark Mark waxman and barnes injury insurance coming up next rest in peace selena speaking of waxman and mustaches and and, and hats oh my we'll be joined by the future mayor of stanford bobby valentine next here on amazing but true Joining us now on Amazing But True is a friend of the program making his second appearance on Amazing But True. He's a Mets manager, a lovable Mets manager from 1996 to 2002, where he took the Mets to the World Series in 2000. He was also an outfielder, shortstop, second baseman of the big leagues, played for the Mets in 1977 and 78. He won as a manager. 1,186 games, finished over 500, which is a difficult thing to do uh, for that long of a period of time where he managed the Rangers, Mets, and Red Sox. He's a championship manager and a god in Japan. He runs the Bobby Valentine Sports Academy, Bobby V's Restaurant and Sports Bar, which is located in the place, Figgy, where we may find him to be the future mayor, literally. You know, not the persona mayor, an actual mayor. He is running to be the next mayor of Stamford, Connecticut. Let's give a warm welcome once again to Bobby Valentine. Bobby V, we call you Mayor Bob, Mayor Bobby, Mayor Uh, Valentine. uh, What's the name? We don't have a name yet. We're working on the campaign. Nice to be with you guys. Thank you very much. Do you have something? Yeah, I mean, do you have in mind what what's what's like your pitch like what are you going to bring to stanford i lived in trumbull for 10 years so i know stanford very well i have friends in stanford who you know who are probably concerned of who their next mayor is and they never thought it'd be a former mets manager i'll tell you that yeah well there's a lot of people who are getting excited about it i'll tell you that that trumbull's a nice town and stanford's surrounded by a, a lot of really nice towns but Stanford's a city. It's a big city now. Uh, you know, we have 135,000 people. We have a very diverse community. And yeah, it needs the uh, proper leadership to move into and move out of COVID and move into the next world. What made you want to run for mayor? Where did, where did this whole idea come from? You know, born and raised in Stanford, Connecticut. I've always been here. We've had a mayor who's been in for seven and a half years and his party decided to primary him, which made me think, wow, if he's not doing a good job, maybe uh, somebody else should. So I got with a lot of people, started dealing with some policy issues, started uh, looking around the city and said, you know, if, if a mayor is supposed to lead after 50 years in the real world of running restaurants and other businesses and managing and <clears throat> running around the world, trying to lead people in the right direction, I figured I had the skill set that was needed. Unbelievable to think about how life after baseball takes over and now you're in the world of politics the arena of politics and we have your back that's for sure here at our uh, amazing but true 
wanted to ask you about managing what Luis Rojas is dealing with. 18 players at one time on the IL. How difficult is that as a manager? It's really difficult. Um, he's, he's trying to break the record that I had in Boston in 2012. We set a record for most players and I think most good players on the disabled list. And difficult because every day your communications with the training room uh, is paramount on making lineups and dealing with bullpens and how you're going to use your bench, you know, who, who needs another day's rest. When you're going to get people back is uh, over always a question and it's a question that no one ever wants to deal with because you know the calendar doesn't dictate when people are healthy uh, mother nature dictates when someone is healthy so uh, it, it's very difficult it's that added uncertainty certainty that you that you have to deal with i think lewis is doing a great job yeah i mean he's a manager of the year candidate bobby and i don't think anyone would have saw this coming i you know criticized him last year made a lot of mistakes as a young manager but what he's done with this team is just miraculous obviously the rest of the division has been hot garbage but i mean the mets are 30 and 24 here uh heading into the summer and uh they have a nice little lead and I like that he's dealing with all the injuries so i mean he's just been remarkable yeah, and he's getting production from, you know, different parts of his lineup, which was, is always so good on a team to have everyone feel like they're part of the team. When I managed in the first week, I tried to get everyone in a game by the end of the first week of the season so that everyone would know that they're in it together. And when you have injuries and you're calling on people who weren't expected to be in the lineup or be on the mound or come out of the bullpen, you know, you, you start to bond together because you realize that you need each other. Yeah. Talking about this generation and, and people always say how these, these guys are soft. They don't play enough games. Have you ever seen a player as tough as Kevin Pillar? When he came back the next day and said he was ready to play, it was really cool. Hey, I'm ready to go. Yeah. He runs into a wall. He doesn't mind uh, getting, getting dirty every day that he plays. He's fun to watch. Hey, they're like, he can't see or breathe, but he wants to play. I'm like, well, listen, I can't I can't even walk to the bodega if, if my back hurts, like, and this guy's doing that. So who were some of the players that you managed like that, Bobby, that were gritty and wanted to play every day? Because we don't hear those stories in today's game as much, I hate to say, be the get-off-my-lawn guy, but we don't, we don't hear those stories of guys wanting to be in every day and playing hurt like we did. Who were some of those guys that you managed? Well, you guys know, and, and Nelly can tell you, you know, if, if you go back, I played in the 70s, and then I managed in the 80s, 90s, and, and double odds. And for most of that time, you didn't come out of the lineup because somebody else had a chance of taking your position. Uh, it's different now because, you know, you get out of the lineup, you get right back in there when you're ready to get back in there. I didn't know if they were tough or they were scared of losing their job, but I never had a player who wanted out, that's for sure. I've seen you kind of make a transformation from the major league side of things, and then you went over to Japan. Japan, you became a totally different, you were Godzilla of Japan. It was amazing because I was in, playing in Taiwan at the time, and I'm trying to follow. I was like, I got to find a way to get in touch with Bobby V and go play for him because everybody wanted to go over there and play for you. How exciting was it to manage in Japan? Well, you know, to to be the first uh, non-Japanese to manage in that in that league, as you know, Figgy, it's a, you know it's a real high class, high caliber league. Um, full stadiums every day, eight national newspapers that cover. There is a lot going on. I can't say that it was easy by any stretch of the imagination. But when they realized that I would eat their food and and try to speak the language, and that I wasn't going there and trying to uh, teach them the game, that I was there to kind of assimilate to their 
culture and see what might work for my culture. I, I think they, they received me with, with open arms after a couple of years. And it was kind of cool when I left there to name a street after me. You know, I, I, I think it was kind of cool. Well, me and Bobby V have something in common. We have Jake Brown Road in New Jersey and we have Bobby Valentine uh, Road uh, in No, you in put Japan. that sign up, Jake. Stop it. <laughs> I get said that every time someone goes down Jake Brown Road. Um, yes, it was indeed named after me. But, I mean, you, you go to Japan and you will never have to pay for a drink or food again. I mean, do you go back and do you, I mean, have you gone back since you managed? And do people, you know, say stuff to you? Do you get you get free five-star meals? How does it work? Well, I don't get much free stuff, um, but I'm really recognized. There's no doubt about that. Mainly because I'm different looking. And I kind of learned and understood what it was to be a minority. You know, there there are places I wasn't allowed to go into. Uh, I went over to Hiroshima quite a few times. And, you know, I, I was looked at as the, the bad guy, as the person that was the protruding nail. And before it was over, it was a real learning experience to understand how your look could actually affect how pe- what people think of you and then how you have to work hard to make them understand who you are, not uh, necessarily what you are. You know what? It's amazing that you say that because I played over uh, in the Konami Cup after winning the championship in Taiwan and we went over to Japan. And I remember me and the other Americans, Pete Monroe was with me and we were watching the way they stared at us. And we thought the same thing. We're like, we're being judged right now over something that has nothing to do with us. We're wanting to play baseball, but you could see these stares with stoic looks on their faces. And I thought it was just me. That is amazing that you you were there for a lot longer than I was and you felt that almost on a daily basis. And that it's it's such an uncomfortable feeling because all you're trying to do, as you said, is assimilate to the to where you're at and and, and enjoy the culture. But there is a very standoffish uh, nature to a lot of Japanese towards Americans still to this day. It's about 98%, 100% Japanese on the island there. So, you know, when you're different, you're suspect. If you have a neighborhood where, where all the Italians look when uh, or live, you know, when the blonde-haired kid walks down the street, they go, what's he doing here? People of color today in many communities around our country uh, uh, have dealt with that all of their lives, every day of their lives. So it, it's hard to understand until you kind of walk in their shoes. It's even hard to understand when you're walking in their shoes, but it, it was a great experience. Speaking of looking different, we are celebrating this week, Wednesday, June 9th, the 22-year anniversary of you looking different from the 12th inning to the 11th inning uh, yeah. when, when you when you put on the mustache and the glasses. I mean, you probably get, you've gotten asked about it a million times. It's the E60 on it. Obviously, it's been all over the place, but we always lo- love looking back to that because you never see it. If Luis Rojas did this, I'd put him in the Hall of Fame because he, he's just so yeah. mild-mannered and, and kind of soft where I would never expect him, one, to get thrown out, and then two, to put on a costume. No one noticed, right? Or did they notice and say, go back in the clubhouse when it happened? Oh, they noticed. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I was there for the guys to notice. You know, it was one of those times where everyone kind of had the uh, deer in the headlights look, you know, what's going to happen wrong. You know, Mike got called for a catcher's box. It's the only, probably the only time in the history of modern baseball that a catcher was called for catcher's box. That's where you step out of the catcher's box before the ball's released by the pitcher. It was like, what? How? Oh, gosh, the baseball gods are against us. And I really felt they needed a little levity. And uh, the guys saw me and they laughed. And Oral was up there. Uh, Oral Hershiser was supposed to be standing 
in the dugout uh, up on the top on the top step, and I was supposed to be behind him so the umpire wouldn't see me. We just didn't take into consideration the third base over overhead camera that went over his shoulder and spotted me pretty easily. So it, I wasn't out there for the TV camera. I was out there for the guys. You know, we had a guy, John Olerud, on the team then who was one of my favorite players, one of the greatest players I, I ever had. But, you know, he was very unemotional, very stoic when he played, went about his business, came in and out of the dugout every inning with the same facial expression. And he was walking out to the on-deck circle, looked over his shoulder, and he saw me there. And he actually stopped and started giggling a little and, you know, had a big smile on his face and everyone in the dugout saw him. And then they all kind of looked down the end of the dugout and then they saw me. I think it really, it really uh, relieved the guys of the tension that they were dealing with. Now, did you have these in your office? You just had a mustache or did you draw it on? Like, were these, did you have Halloween props in your, in your office? Yeah, you know, it's one of the first times that I got caught when I came back. Oh, I'm only kidding. No, you know what? The, uh, the guys, uh, Robin Ventura was up there. I pinch ran for him. He was up in the clubhouse and Oral came running up. He said, hey, I'll be your runner. I'll be your runner. And while he was thinking about being my runner, which was that guy who would, you know, communicate from the clubhouse to the bench what the manager would want going on in the game. You know, Robin said, why don't you go down there instead of having Oral run? Just put on some glasses, put on this hat, and then take off your uniform. No, you'll, you'll be fine. And I went into the clubhouse with the hat and the glasses on, and then I looked down, as Figgy would tell you, on the trainer's little table there, they had the stickers that you would peel off and put underneath your eye for to take the glare of a sun out of your eyes. And I unpeeled one and put it under one side of my nose, unpeeled the other, put it on the other side side of my nose. I looked at them and they said, oh, no one will ever know. And I said, ah, what the hell? And I went down to the dugout. And it only cost me 10000 in a fine and three-day suspension that Leonard Coleman, when I went in on a bent knee, reduced it to $5,000 in a two-day suspension. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that they do suspend you for that. I thought maybe a fine, but uh, I thought it'd more just be funny and they'd laugh it off. And did you ever try it again or was the fine and the suspension too hefty to uh, find another uh, form of a mustache? Well, I don't want to say that I ever did it again. Let me just put this like incriminating. If I ever did it again, it was a better it was a better discussion. Oh, we gotta hear the story, Bobby. You gotta give us the amazing but true exclusive that you you wore a disguise again in like two thousand one or something. No, no, I really didn't. I wore one back in like eighty nine. You know, I was suspended. At that time when you're suspended you had to you could be with the team for practice, but you couldn't be in the stadium for the game and we're playing in the metrodome to leave the metrodome would be would mean i wouldn't have any communication whatsoever with the team so i decided i'd sit out in the left field stand and so i put on a disguise you know mustache and my hair was real black at the time and i put talcum powder in my hair to make it look white as it is now uh put a hat on a t-shirt i said oh this is pretty cool i was going out to the left field bleachers and as I was going up the escalator some fans were coming down the escalator on the other side and one of them looked over at me and said hey Bobby where are you going and I said well I guess it's not that good of a disguise <laughs> so you, you might be the Elias Sports Bureau just called me they said you're the first two-time manager to get thrown out in disguise uh Ever. So uh, you, you're in the history books, Bobby. Now running for mayor of Stanford. Do you smack talk your other candidates? Now you're going up against David Martin and Caroline Simmons. Is there mayoral smack talk, Bobby? Uh, I hope not. Uh, 
I, I, I mean, I'm not going to participate in that. And I'm not really running against both of them. They'll have a primary, and one of them will win the Democratic primary. And then there might be a Republican candidate, and I'm running unaffiliated, so I'll run against the party's choices. And I'm not sure who that will be. That there, You know, the primary's in September, so I won't know until then. And all I'm doing is trying to build my ground game and build my team. And, you know, I'm doing it from scratch. When you do it unaffiliated, that means you're not affiliated with any party. That means you don't have the state national support for money and, and information and, and statistics and everything that you need. So we're compiling that on our own. It's been really exciting trying to put this team together. It's the most challenging team building effort I've ever had. Looking forward to us seeing you down the road. Follow him on Twitter, at Bobby Valentine. Vote for him for mayor, especially if you're in Connecticut. You're in Stanford. Vote for Bobby V, and you can check out the Bobby V Sports Academy, BV Sports Academy on Twitter. Thanks, Bobby. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. At BobbyValentine.com, we'll get you a volunteer or a donation. Thank you very much. BobbyValentine.com. Put your mustache on when you donate and the glasses, too. (laughs) Thanks, Bobby. Take care, Bobby. Thank you. See you, guys. And that'll say adios to episode 59, the Guillermo Moda yuck edition of Amazing But True. We're getting some, some ugly names at this point. Our Mets podcast from the New York Post. How'd you think the names are going to get better because the numbers get higher? What's wrong with you? Thanks to you, Jake and Brian Mungia, for producing the show. Please subscribe to Amazing But True. Give us a five-star rating and write in a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Gracias, mis amigos. For Nelson Figueroa, live from his bathroom, I'm Jake Brown. We'll be back on Monday after the Mets series against the Padres. Enjoy the games at City. We'll see you there. Let's go, Mets. Wow.